Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hi, hello, how are you? It's Daryl and welcome to Cage Rage and Nicholas Cage podcast. What could be easier to see? Welcome to episode 81 of Cage Rage, a Nicolas Cage podcast in which you join me, Daryl Edge, on the journey to true Cage Nirvana. What is that, you may ask? Well, let me tell you, it is only the highest, most purest, most essential, spiritual, emotional, physical, uh, soulful, sexual form of being possible, and that is achieved only, you guessed it, by watching every single movie, the man I call the golden hog of Hollywood, the greatest actor of our generation, Nicholas Cage. Watching all these movies, learning a little bit more about the man, and getting closer to the golden hog himself. How have you been? Hope you've been well. Uh, we continue on with the 80s. We're into the 80s now of the episodes. We wrap up 2017 this week um, with a uh, delightful, delightful episode recorded quite some time ago, finally coming out now as I was joined by Ollie Ryder of the Sitcand podcast, uh, joining me to talk about the 2017 black comedy Mom and Dad, a uh, pretty underrated Cage film, one certainly worth checking out, and a film in which uh, Cage gets to uh, flex those comedy muscles, those comedy chops, which we all know he's got, um, and I think often quite underutilised for uh, for Mr. Cage. So we discuss a number of things in this episode, um, so it's Cage films that we've seen and enjoyed, uh, and ultimately Bomb and Dad, what we think the message of this film is about, if it has one at all. And we will find out, as per an interview, what is the one thing that frustrates Nicolas Cage most of all that he channeled into this movie as well. If you enjoy the show, if you enjoy the episode, please let me know on social media. You can find me on Twitter at Cage underscore podcast. I'm on Instagram at Cage Rage Pod. And you can find me on all the usual streaming services if you are listening to one in which you can leave a rating please feel free to leave a uh, five-star rating. Helps the show grow, helps more people find it, and it's always appreciated on this journey to true Cajun Nirvana. Always room for more, and your listenership is always loved and appreciated. So thank you very much. Uh, with that all said and done, let's get into the episode. It's episode 81. Ollie Ryder, Daryl Lynch, So It's time to wrap up 2017 with the comedy horror Mom and Dad. This week, Cage plays Brent, the patriarch of the Ryan family, who, along with his wife, is suddenly affected by an outbreak of mass hysteria, causing parents to violently turn against their children. Now, joining me on the journey to True Cage Nirvana this week to see if this film is more nuclear family or family just go and play nuclear is one third of the delightful sitcom podcast, Ollie Ryder. Ollie, how are you doing today? I am all right, thank you. How are you? Not too bad, I think, other than the uh, technical issues we were discussing off record. Mm. Um, can't complain, but new Cage film for me, uh, tucked in this morning, so um, otherwise can't 
complain. Um, it's a it's this is a weird film to watch at ten o'clock in the morning. Um, it's I don't think it's a morning film. No, um, it's a lot more of a sort of. Um, I like to think of it. It it missed the sort of the prime of the drive-in cinema because I think that is when it would have been at its most prime viewing. I think. Yeah, it's um. It, it's a, I mean, it's a weird film, don't get me wrong. Yeah. You know, um, I don't think many people saw it according to the box office. Um, and we'll get into all of that and sort of deep dive into the film as we go along. But always with the episodes, with new guests, always love to know. Um, Nicholas Cage, for you, Ollie, you know, as I always say on the podcast, everyone's got an opinion on him. Hey, so difficult to pin down. Uh, but what's your take on uh, the band, the myth, the legend of Cage? <laughs> Um, my take is that, for me, he is the only actor ever, regardless of what anyone thinks of him, he's the only actor who never gives a performance that's not 100% committed, no matter what it is he's in. And I think even by his own admission, he's been in some pretty shabby films, but he is never shabby in anything because he believes so much in what he does. And for me, that's what makes him one of the few actors who I will go and, if I know that he is in it, I will go and see it. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I mean, you don't have to ask me twice. You just say Nicolas Cage and I'm there. Um, when you're explaining as well at the start of your sentence, just saying he's the only actor, I would have been happy for you to just stop there. Um, yeah. <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, no one else exists. Um, I do think that's true, though. This is something I've touched upon on the podcast a few times. Um, when I think, even like financial situation aside, Nicolas mm -hmm. Cage is one of those people that I think you could give him a movie that's like, here's like a hundred million dollars to do this, or you give him a script that's like, he can push himself as an actor or do something where he thinks he can be a bit more um, expressionistic or challenge himself, I think he's going to take the artistry every time. Um, mm, absolutely. I th you know, I think he is a man like he isn't, you know, like I said, we don't see him in the public eye. He's not really a celebrity in the traditional sense other than these like Bigfoot stories you see about him. Um, he's an actor who enjoys acting and he, and he, uh, he heralds the craft above all of the things, and that's something I really, um, I think at this stage in the podcast, I really admire about him. He's, there's no mm. pretense, there's no bullshit for Cage, and he he leaves it all out there for everyone to see. Um, especially with like mom and dad, this is you know I think we get a, a pretty cagey performance as I expect we're going to get. Um, oh, definitely. <laughs> um, I mean, coming is this? Had you seen mom and dad before? Yes, actually, because um, two of my friends and I, Eddie, who I do the sitcom podcast with, and Nick, we're all, everyone else thinks we're completely mad, but we are all <laughs> through the shared opinion that Nick Cage is in it, we will go and see it, and we had just had a bloody good laugh in the cinema. <laughs> oh man, I, I, this is another one, I think I just, some of these films, especially in this era of 10s, the 2010s for Cage, because so much was coming out straight to DVD for him. Um, mm -hmm. A lot of stuff really slipped me by um, until I started doing this podcast. Mom and Dad being sort of a prime example of it. Um, I always find it interesting as well, because like, the, the next film that was sort of released chronologically after this was Mandy. 
So that was such a... Did, was uh, it really? That Was that big of a gap? Yeah, I mean, it was like 2017, we come to the end. Um, with, oh, time has just become so irrelevant. At the <laughs> I forget what came out what year. Uh, like Honestly, I look at the um, the Nick Cage filmography on Wikipedia, just for ease. Um, and I just look at these numbers that come after 2-0, and I'm like, I don't know what you are anymore. <laughs> it could just be like letters, hieroglyphs. I don't know. I don't understand anything anymore. I just wake up and like, oh, this Nicholas Cage is keeping me on this mortal realm. That's all I'm saying. Um, as, as soon as I've caught up to his, the end of his filmography, I'm off. I'm out of here. There's nothing left. <laughs> um, but um, I think this was with um, this in, in Mom and Dad. This is kind of, I think, the start of uh, like an itch that, to be scratched for him in like horror he'd expressed interest in it, like he enjoyed horror, much more of the um, the hammer horror, I think more of the theatrical performances as opposed mm. to slashers. And then we get that sort of a bit more in um, the likes of Mandy, the likes of Colour Out of Space as well, Willy's Wonderland, which at the time of recording has just sort of come out. Um, but I think it's one of these things with Cage. He's, he's a genre, um, an undefinable, un-genre-esque actor like you can't pin him to one genre he bounces from genre to genre all the time mm -hmm. but i think he was kind of in the same way in the mid 90s where he could have been um i suppose a big action star i think even now he's, he's painting a pretty good path as a as like a horror star as well that's it and for me horror being like my um my primary joy and love with regards to films and such i am embracing it with open arms i think <laughs> Something like Willy's Wonderland this year, will I see better made and cleverer films this year? Undoubtedly. Will I see anything I enjoyed more than Willy's Wonderland? Probably not. Yeah, I mean, coming into the start of 2021 when we're recording this um, sort of tail end of February, um, I think it's a very big way to kick off the year, like a, essentially a Valentine's Day release when it came <laughs> out. Um and, you know, there's a lot of big films coming out this year. You know, we've, we've got Godzilla versus King Kong and, um, you know, the Mortal Kombat film, going by the trailer mm. for that alone, which that trailer sort of smashing records. Um, and I, it's one of those things like, you know, I don't love Mortal Kombat. I don't hate it. I'll probably end up seeing it because it looks like it's going to be, I don't even know what it's going to be. It's just going to get some guys getting their arms frozen off according to the trailer. Evan's going to go fucking ape shit for it. Yeah, um, I, I, but I think... I'm really feeling that the sort of lately there is, I think there needs to be sort of a lean towards and embracing the silliness. It's, you know, just give it, like I say, give me Nick Cage fighting a load of animatronic robots. Oh my God. Like I was, I think it's with the, I suppose with the 2020 we've had, um, it was, it's kind, it kind of sounds a bit excessive to say, but in a way, it was kind of the film I needed. Um, exactly. It's like, I just, I needed that just 90 minutes of something being so gratuitously fucking dumb. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, I just, I just needed to relax and watch Nicolas Cage fucking scream and beat gorillas and weasels. Yep. <laughs> um, it's a weird thing, you know, sometimes on paper, you don't know that's the film that you need, but, um, Willy's Wonderland definitely was. Um, is that a film you've seen, by the way, Willy's Wonderland? Oh, absolutely. I um, It was 
really great that the watershed in Bristol, which is not exactly my local independent cinema, but it's one that I've been to lots of times. They were running that system where you could pay through a ticket through them and they would get half the fees to stream it from home, which, you know, I am not knocking all the brilliant things like Amazon Prime and Netflix for a, a second, but with the state of cinemas obviously being what they are, I happily do anything that could help independent cinema survive. So, and it being my favorite cinema as well, it was the double whammy got it the day before valentine's day luckily my girlfriend um <laughs> agreed to watch it and she really enjoyed it as well so yeah um, unfortunately i'm based in these and there wasn't anything sort of um local which i thought there might have been but unfortunately there wasn't um uh, i was in a slightly similar boat where i was able to persuade my other half to sort of watch it with me as well and um Again, I've mentioned it on the podcast before. She's not the biggest Nicolas Cage fan. Um, I think she's slowly relenting um, in knowing that this isn't just a passing phase for me. Um, I do ironically enjoy this man. Um, and she did watch Willy's Wonderland with me as well. And she, um, I always find it so surprising when she says she enjoys a Nicolas Cage film. I'm like, Yes, I'm breaking down her resolve, <laughs> <laughs> slowly but surely. Um, obviously, for the sake of a Zoom call, this is audio, but behind me there's a Nicolas Cage cardboard cutout. Indeed there um, is. <laughs> just, just set dressing for the guests, really. It's just set dressing. <laughs> <laughs> um, my girlfriend had taken just to put in this in the the downstairs window, just so he, just so he faces our neighbour, um, just because he's a... Like I said, I, I, this is a weird hill and tangent for me to die on. Lovely guy, he's done nothing wrong, but he's aggressively boring, and that for me is a, an offence punishable by death. Um, just you know, just there's more to life than putting like different fairy lights in your garden. Um, he's we've we've taken to calling him the Mothman now because he's always messing with his lights. Um, my personal vendetta aside, I usually leave those for the intros. Um, so you know, I think there's something about Nicholas Cage that can appeal. And sort of break through um, all those all those sorts of boundaries as well. For me, what completely won me over as a Nicolas Cage fan was seeing uh, the Wicker Man remake in the cinema, and the moment when he is running up the hill dressed as a bear, and he punches that woman in the face. It was one of <laughs> my favourite cinema experiences ever because my friends and I, we were just, honestly, I don't think we saw the rest of the film because we were just in pain because we were laughing <laughs> so much. And and obviously, is it a better film than the original? No, but honestly, if someone says you've got to watch either of them, for me, it's the remake every time because it's so joyfully naff. Yeah, and I don't buy. It's almost a bit like the room where now they reword and go. Oh, we always meant for it to be a little bit. It's like no, you didn't. Of course you did. But, <laughs> but at least because I remember hearing him say in an interview that he's just grateful that people get enjoyment out of it. And I think it takes a bigger person to do something like that. It you know with all these sort of so bad it's good kind of films. There's a lot of people who get very you know het up about it and. Like, oh no, it's not a bad film. And what are you talking about? But for him to say that if people are getting enjoyment out of it, it doesn't matter like what the reaction is. And I think, yeah, that's what something I just really admired about him. 
Yeah, I I think he he probably took a better path because I think I think they definitely didn't intend for it to be a comedy when no. they made it and released <laughs> it. This is one of those things because his production company Saturn Pictures worked on that, and now um and now it's like any <laughs> any time I see um that name come up like the Saturn just sort of pops up there um Saturn films I should say I get so nervous <laughs> because. <laughs> A lot of the time, the films that are associated with it can be kind of naff. Um, I mean, it is pretty 50-50. I mean, The Wicker Man is there. Bangkok Dangerous is there. But they did also work on Willy's Wonderland as well. So it's so, so 50-50. And again, this is something I've touched upon on the podcast um, with Saturn Films. Like, I swear to God, I've tried to find information about Saturn Films on the internet. Like, this is a shadow ghost company. They do not exist. There is something going on here. Um, I'm like, you know, I swear I'm not making this up. I know what I've seen or haven't seen. Um, I think they're a money laundering company, which would kind of ex- explain some of Cage's choices. <laughs> um, that's the only baseless theory that I have. Um, but that's, that is an ongoing, an ongoing investigation. I would also add, though, um, the fact you got to see the Wicker Man re- remake in the cinema, I can't tell you how jealous I am. Um, <laughs> again, I think that was one that um, unfortunately uh, passed me by back when that would have come out in um, end of 2006. Yeah. Um, I, it was that's... very much sort of still... I think it's it's kind of a shame nowadays that it feels like film certificates don't really mean very much anymore because people can sort of watch anything anywhere anyway. But this was not really a long, long time after I turned 15. So obviously there's the excitement of going, oh, it's, you know, is it this rated film? We can go and see it now. And so, I mean, we had no idea that we were going to get that. <laughs> but yeah, it, yeah. Yeah, I... I um. I mean, I've said it before, this is now a film that I <laughs> I bought, I purchased this on Amazon Prime, so I own this film, £7, don't regret a penny of it, um, <laughs> and I'll definitely watch it again. I remember when I recorded the episode for it, I was just um, sort of downstairs, sat next to my partner, had my headphones on, was just watching it on my laptop, so obviously she can't hear anything, I'm just sat quietly to her left as she's just watching TV. And then there's that scene where he's on the ferry and that like truck plows that little girl, and I was crying, and she she was frightened with just a sudden burst of just emotion that came from my face, like what are you doing? Why are you making all this noise? Then I'm trying to explain, ferry truck girl, <laughs> um, it's like you just it's like are you? I think she asked me twice if I was having a stroke. Um, <laughs> <laughs> to this day, I might have been, um, and I don't truthfully know. Um, but I think there was um, there was supposed to be a, a sequel to that one as well. There was like a um, an alternative alternative ending that didn't get like a theatrical release or, or at least a DVD release. When the same cult people at the end go to a bar and it's James Franco they start talking to. So he yeah, was, it was re- it was a re- I mean we're gonna. Um, come the end of this podcast, we'll talk about weird endings <laughs> again. But um, yeah, it was a very odd way to end it because I understand them sort of going, like, oh, you know, the cycle will begin again. But yeah, it was so 
odds. I appreciate probably ending films is one of the hardest things ever, but it just, it just sort of came out of nowhere and just felt really limp. Yeah, it's um, if they you know just ended it with Cage and the Wicker Man, I think you know that's mm. the that's the appropriate imagery. That's the the lasting imagery that sort of sticks with you of him just broken legged and screaming and stung in <laughs> in that wicker skull. Um, so they didn't really need to. And I think they were overly ambitious that they were going to get a sequel. Mm-hmm. Uh, they did, I think, like you said, in a very Tommy Wiseau way. They did not see the film that we saw, um, no. for better or for better or worse. Um, that's why speaking speaking of films that we did see, um, Mum and Dad is uh, yes. our flavour of the week this week. As you said, you've seen it before. For me, this was the first time seeing it. I'd only seen, or I should say, like knew of uh, certain clips in this sort of taken out of context. Of um, well, and when I start saying it, you'll probably know where I'm going with this. Certain cage deliveries, one <laughs> was the greatest delivery of the line of "motherfucker" you've yes. ever heard, like "motherfuckers," and the other, um, I think I wrote down the exact quote here. Um, he goes, "Mouth to dildo, dildo to ass, house to ass." Um, hi Brent, anal beads, <laughs> <laughs> which. I want tattooed on me from like uh, arm to arm, going like left to right. Um, there's there's just like we're saying snippets of um of like the pure cage that we get in here. Um, mm. it's, all in all, like I said, it's it's a strange film. Um, I enjoyed it. I think I I'm not I'm not sure. If there was a message, I think, with the greatest of respect to the film, it was ninety minutes of noise. Um, mm. But I, I, I did sort of ultimately in, enjoy it. I mean, do, do you sort of recall, I guess, your thoughts on the film, like the first time you saw it as well? I think seeing it for the first time, obviously, the main appeal was the ridiculous, over-the-top moments that Cage had, but. Watching it again, sort of thinking about it a bit more critically, and then also watching it again today, um, it, it's a very ill-disciplined film. I feel like <laughs> the idea behind it is really good, but it it is all over the place at times. <laughs> yeah, in, in the way that it jumps backwards and forwards in times and only once ever specifically saying this was three weeks ago yeah i I didn't actually pick up on that that's a great point (laughs) um it's it's weirdly paced it can't always decide what pace it wants to be like in the in the middle of like um them trying to chase the children or they're having a sit down scene then we get a flashback to uh some time before and then we're back and I was kind of watching it like in bed, just going like, I'm not sure where I'm supposed to be in terms of pace with this. It's a weird, um, I guess like a, a very stop-start pace to it. Um, mm. It's it seemed like a film that sort of, it builds, then we have like a big scene and then it stops. And then it builds, we have a big scene, then it stops. And it mm. does that. And then sometimes it does it a bit quicker and then a bit slower. Um, and it's, it's kind of, and again, I say this in the nicest way. It's a demented film. Yeah, <laughs> um, absolutely. I mean, I 
I so this is one of those things with horror films. I'm, 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 I'm sort of coming from this quite fresh at the time of recording. I've watched this like a few hours before recording. So I'm kind of, um, I guess, still piecing some stuff together. That's um, with this, this is one of those films when you don't really get the explanation as to why this mass hysteria is happening. It's just hinted there's, there's a static that's playing. Mm. Um, and it only affects parents and they only want to, kill their own biological children they're not affected or interested in anything else um you don't get any other explanation apart from that we just get one talking head of a guy saying this is like pigs um (laughs) which is like i guess i guess it's kind of like pigs i don't know enough about pigs to to tell you if this is right or wrong um I, i suppose broadly asking here um did you have any like thoughts or theories on like the static or um I guess in general what are your sort of thoughts on this quote unquote explanation of what's going on? One thing that was quite interesting was when I watched watching it again this time, I had forgotten that it was only their children who they were attacking. Yeah. I just remember the first time watching it, it's oh, it's all of the parents trying to kill all the children. Um but it's such a difficult one to sort of pinned down because whenever something isn't explained it always walks a really fine line between is it more effective because we don't know and if an explanation was given would we sort of turn our noses up and go "Mm, that's a bit naff of a way of explaining it all um or do we need one otherwise what on earth was the point and i feel like because this definitely did try and go down the road of it's sort of a horror comedy that um i feel like they didn't especially need to give an explanation as to what it was because like a more serious film probably would have done and i think as a result would have been weaker for it so i just it's i think for me this whole message behind it is just sort of one of those hypotheticals about parents all meant to love their kids and the parents are the ones who the kids look to to protect them but also it's it's um midlife crisis the movie <laughs> basically when the parents realize that one day they'll be it's it's sort of a much more blunt toy story 3 where the toys are realizing <laughs> that they won't get played with anymore and the kids are moving on um but with a sawzall instead of that's like yeah <laughs> yeah that's um that's uh, that flashback scene with Nick Cage in the man cave. Um, I, I guess now you say basically the same thing as Toy Story 3 when the toys are holding hands and going towards that fucking lava end of the world trash compactor mm-hmm. at, the, <laughs> at the end of uh, season three. Um, I remember saying in the film, wouldn't it be uh, hilarious if the film just ended there? Um I, th- I think I remember seeing online somewhere someone edited the film and gave it to like their family to make it end there. So they were just crying and like, wait, what? <laughs> then they had to tell them afterwards, like, oh no, it was just a joke because they were crying. So like, it's mean. Wonderful, it's very... but mean. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful, but mean. Wonderful, but mean. Um, and I suppose, yeah, you, know, you were saying that, you know, is there a meaning to this? It's kind of like, maybe maybe there's a meaning there I, I you know i'm not sure for me if this was kind of like 
getting old is hard. Um, mm-hmm. Is it some kind of take on the older generation affecting the newer generation? Hashtag OK Boomer. Um, I don't, you know, I, I don't know. I suppose I'd, in a way you kind of feel for Cage in the midlife crisis when he's just trying to build that pool table and, mm-hmm. you know, um, no, not a parent myself except to a cat, if that counts, you know. Um, Definitely, I'm, as a co-cat parent. <laughs> um, I mean, every now and then I don't pick on a, up on it because these headphones I've got are quite noise cancelling. Sometimes my cat hears me outside the, the room where I'm recording and then I listen back in when I'm editing and I just hear him screaming to get in and I'm like, oh. like this is really cute, but I don't know how to edit that out. So there's <laughs> there's early episodes where my cat's just screaming in the background and there's nothing I can do about it. Oh. Um, but, you know, it, it means he cares and hopefully exactly. I won't get affected by static and chase him around the house, mostly mm. because he's too fast. <laughs> um, but... Um, did kind of feel, I think that's one of sort of the few emotional things you get in the, the film. And he's he sat down with um, uh, with Kendall, played by Selma Blair. And he's like, I used to be Brent, you used to be Kendall. And he was basically like, we used to just go around fucking and shit. And like, well, you know, <laughs> that's life, sir. Um, but then, you know, it also leads into the, um, and one of the, I guess peak cage moments in this film. I do want to sort of ask you for your thoughts on as well. But he gets the um, uh, the sledgehammer and he starts hokey pokey smashing it to pieces. Um, with that being one of the sort of the peak cage moments, um, was that was that an enjoyable moment for you as it was for me? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I was so. I don't think it was in the trailer because. And I'm glad it wasn't because it was such a highlight of when we saw it in the cinema. It, it just comes from absolutely nowhere. And you do wonder if the director actually told him that that's what he needed to do. Or the script just stopped at that point and said, I don't know. <laughs> be Nick Cage for a couple of minutes and he was Nick Cage. Yeah. Um, I mean, when I um, saw this scene sort of play out for the first time, I think knowing Cage the way I do at this point in the podcast, I saw it and I was like, he definitely added that. There's no question in my mind that he added mm-hmm. that. Um, so I know for certain things, the way he taps into characters, he sort of channels personal experience. Um, conveniently enough, bringing this up, um, I did find there was an interview that he did um, promoting the film. And there's a few things that he brought up. The hokey pokey scene was, one of them, um, he was asked about it. Um, he said, and I quote, the hokey pokey scene came from my own experience from kindergarten where the Bureau of Education, I had realized, designed a song to sort of separate the discoordinated children from the coordinated children. Um, not that I was discoordinated. He had to add that in there. Uh, but I had friends who were, and I knew what was going on. You have to put your right foot in, and then your left, then tap your head and turn around. They're trying to, like, sort you out. Like, who's discoordinating, who isn't? Um, And he continues, I took great umbrage with that at, like, five years old, and it really (laughs) pissed me off. And I hated doing the hokey pokey. So I said, well, what would really get me frustrated? What do I despise really more than anything? It's the song Hokey Pokey. So more than terrorism, more than racism, more than sexism, more than, you know, whatever else is going on in the world politically as well. For Nicolas Cage, the fucking biggest bugbear is the hokey pokey. Um, 
So I, I was I was reading that and I was like, I, th- I mean, it probably goes without saying. I think you have some things you need to talk to some people about. Mm-hmm. If um, the hokey pokey is the thing that's keeping you up at night, um, and you know, as as weird a follow up question as this sounds, um, do you share any concerns about the hokey pokey or other childhood songs that really annoy you? I always think it's a bit sad sometimes when you grow up and you learn the actual meanings of some, some like um, Baba Black Sheep, for example. When you grow older and you go. Oh, yes, <laughs> or, 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 or Puff the Magic Dragon and things like that, and it yeah, it's it's, it's kind of a bit. Oh, Ring Around the Roses. There, and there is, and I'm saying this, there are so many. They keep building up, and you're going, and you just taught us these songs, and we just had to sing them, and, and you were okay with it. That is complete. I just think that is such a wonderful example, though, of, and it's why I'm so glad that. There is a film in the works all about the unbearable weight of talent where he has to live through all of his sort of film roles again. It's just a perfect example of just why I love him so much. There's just no gap between like who is Nick Cage and who is the character that he's playing. And I just, that's, it's just one of the key things I find so wonderful about him. There was one instant when I believe they were filming Ghost Rider Spirit of Vengeance in um, Budapest or somewhere. And there's just this footage of him outside a nightclub with his then partner at the time and some guy and they're having this big argument. And the only bit that you can make out because he yells it really loud is, um, I would die in the name of honor. (laughs) What What were they talking about? Oh, I mean, I take Cage at his word and I think he would. Mm, absolutely. Uh, um, yeah, I think for Cage, he's one of the few people I'm kind of like, I don't want context. I don't need no. it. <laughs> um, I want his words and actions to stand for himself when he's, um, uh, well, obviously he can't die when I've gone and he continues on after all of us, you know, um, let his words and my, and the delusional ramblings of a clearly ill man on this podcast speak for itself. Um I, oh man, out of context cage is just a wonderful, wonderful thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but as you sort of brought up there, um, Spirit of Vengeance, Ghost Rider Spirit of Vengeance, um, that was directed as well by the director of this film, Brian it Taylor, was, yeah. um, who also directed Crank and Crank High Voltage. Um, so an absolute triple threat of um, bonkers mm-hmm. action uh, films there. Um so Cage had said as well that um, from their previous partnership, working with Brian Taylor was, and he quotes, a jazz style of directing and acting, noting that because they uh, both have a similar taste in absurdist visions, it was very easy for them to work together. Um, which you can sort of tell Cage had also said that at the time in 2017, this in Mom and Dad was his favourite movie that he'd filmed in the last 10 years. Um, so I guess if you go like 2007 to 2017, you know, in there you've got Bad Lieutenant, you've got both the Ghost Riders, um, National Treasure 2, uh, Left Behind as well, uh, the less mm-hmm. said the better, um, and just a, nu- just a number of absolute guffs in between as well, including um, uh, USS Indianapolis Men of Courage, uh, a film 
he said because he's always fantasized about making a film at sea. Um, but some things, you know, some dreams just aren't made to be realized. So I think I think you can you can tell in the performance when Cage was having fun. When oh, it's... absolutely, that was so evident. I think the interesting thing was because earlier we were saying about how it's hard to sort of define what this film is, and I think part of the problem is that the kids in it are acting as if it's a horror film, and all the adults are acting as if it's like a, a comedy. Yeah, and that's where the big disconnect is, and I think that is ultimately why i still really enjoy it but if someone's to say like sort of where are its faults and i think that's sort of the problem in that it doesn't it sort of tries to straddle both and can't quite do enough of either of them i would say yeah i would be in agreement with you on that because there were you know times when we do get horror and then i think largely through cage's performance we get comedy um sometimes it can't really balance the comedy horror it bills itself as um sometimes it tries to be more comedy sometimes it tries to be more horror um it, it, it maybe should have been just pure horror i don't know um or if it was just just straight build as like like a, a black comedy horror um mm. i think it like you said it, it struggles to be consistent in what it is and as we said earlier i think the pacing doesn't really help either um i mean that's a really good point that we said the kids obviously they're for them this is they're playing it straight they're playing it this is um as horror but you've got um uh brent and kendall um cage and selma who are um they're just having a conversation and lightly bickering with each other as they're trying to kill the kids. Um, She's like like being shot. She's been shot in the shoulder by um, Josh, the youngest son. And they're just sort of bickering with each other. And she's like, where did you get a gun? It's like, it was in a lockbox. Like, what was the combination? Josh's birthday. Oh, and then a flashback of Josh just swinging around a gun in his tighty whiteys. I was like, you know, some of the flashback scenes didn't really need to be explained. No. I think I, I didn't, you know, you can you can explain it if there's another shot of just like a lockbox under the bed, like, oh, what's that? And then just, you know, let us work it out rather than have to show us everything. Um, so that kind of, I think, killed the momentum of some of the comedy. But some of the bits when... Um, there together, um, Cage and Selma Blair, when she has the idea to feed the garden hose from the, the oven in the kitchen through to the um, to the basement and sort of like soil it up so they get gassed out when they're hiding in the basement. And he's like, that's a really good idea, honey. Love you. And I was like, <laughs> we're just discussing these great ideas to uh, kill kids. And like you said, when um, they're trying to... St- get the door down and he's like there's no way he's going to saw through that like it's a saws all it saws all uh, and it's in a weird way i was like this and not th- not that i would be sort of hyper um hypothetically talking about killing a child here but some of these like weird bickery kind of um non-argument kind of things are in a weird way some of the things i can imagine like me and my partner having like a small argument about um when it's one of those like, why do we even have that argument? Oh, it's because we couldn't agree on if the saws all could saw all. Um, 
and stuff like that. So I, I, I definitely liked the relationship between them. I thought that was pretty, pretty mm. solid. Um, what was your sort of take on the um, uh, Brent and Kendall and Kendall as well, um, and how they were on screen? Yeah, I think um, what Selma Blair doesn't get enough credit, I think, for the fact that quite often the partner sort of alongside Nick Cage, I can't think of very many occasions where he's not sort of, and you can understand because he's a big personality and a big actor, mm-hmm. um, but quite often he really overshadows his female partner. And yet bizarrely, by being a lot more understated than he is, she actually does a really good job of sort of, you believe in them as a couple. I think Laura Dern, obviously, in Wild at Heart does a brilliant job as well. Um, but yeah, it's, I think I do think it takes a lot for not just um, an actress, an actor to sort of stand side by side to Nick Cage. And that's why I think obviously something like Face Off works so well because him and John Travolta just played off each other really well. Um, but yeah, I, just, I completely buy into their relationship. And like you mentioned earlier, I think that scene in amongst all the madness where they have the flashback and they're sat on the floor saying, well, what their lives could have been, that it's a genuinely sort of a tender moment and one that I'm sure for older viewers probably resonates quite a lot, I think. Yeah, it's it's that, that weird thing that's the... Uh... It was hysteria and bloodlust that sort of started repairing the relationship yeah. um, uh, between them. Except I thought, um, you know, Salma was great. And exactly as you um, touched upon there, it can be um, very easy to be overshadowed by Cage. But I think there are some films when he is uh, used right. And I've said this before, when the film matches him mm. or when everything is just so ridiculous that, you know, you get a lot of people on an equal playing field. Um, and again, touching on what you said in the fact that she is, in many respects, um, almost like a, I guess, like if the, if we're talking about in double act terms here, um, she's kind of like the, the straight man, or straight woman, I should say, compared to his sort of over-the-top physicality. And mm. um, I think it's, it's a great pairing. There's good chemistry there. I enjoyed seeing them on screen. Um, but then it's... Um, sort of so so weird but i think good when this they keep flipping from trying to kill their kids and then kendall's trying to save her uh nephew i think from her sister who's trying to kill the newborn mm. i think that was one of the few scenes when i was when i got a little uncomfortable i was like oh they're not actually going to kill like a, <laughs> a baby baby are they um and thankfully they they don't um I should preface as well. I've been doing this podcast for like nearly a year now, and I never, I always forget to say that there are spoilers in these um, in these episodes. I should really start doing that. Um, but I think from the acting standpoint, to go from you know where you know, suburban family, you know, this you know we've got some problems, but then going to bloodlust, back to we're crying, and there's there's a lot of emotions here. There's a lot mm. of emotions that are covered. Um, and I always say with Cage, like, who else has the range? I, uh, exactly. I, I beg you to 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 show me someone else who has the range. I loved how in his um, crying moments as well, we sort of we get as a, a tantalizing little um, Easter egg of uh, vampires kiss a little bit in terms of just how over the top he's going with his crying. That made me very happy. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, um, I I put that in my notes as well. When he's um, he's crying, he's putting like he's balling up his fist and put it in his mouth. Um, it's almost the same shot as mm. Vampire's Kiss when he's crying. The only difference is that we don't get a, a, a guttural boo-hoo um, <laughs> scream as well. I th- I think they probably had to um, <laughs> rein themselves in a little bit there. Um, but sort of touching back on sort of Cage's performance as well, and this is actually going back to the same interview I sort of sourced it from earlier. Um, he said going into this that... Um, he was a fan of Jack Nicholson's performance in The Shining, and he wanted to sort of channel the character of Jack Torrance mm. and, I quote, re- uh, realize one of his performance dreams, adding, I wanted to see if I could ever do a performance where I could try to achieve a level of menace and comedy at the same time and, and sort of try to approach something like that. When I read Brian's script, I thought that was the opportunity to do it. Um, mm. So he'd been... Effectively, he's been waiting for years and years to play a role where he can go after a child and kill it. <laughs> <laughs> if if we're going to read between the lines here, um, as I as I often love to do, um, to my knowledge, Nick Cage hasn't been in anything Stephen King related, and yet I think he would suit that world perfectly. I don't think. I mean, there's already there's talk of an Exorcist remake, and so inevitably The Shining is probably going to follow, even though it has been remade once. I think one of my issues with The Shining is the fact that because everyone sort of knows, you know, wild, crazy Jack Nicholson, it's not as much of a shock when he finally snaps. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what, in terms of in a comparison to the book, lets the film down a little bit because it's all about the build up of madness. And I think. That's why someone like, as much as I love him, someone like Nick Cage, although he wouldn't suit that just because he would just do his typical sort of naught to 60 performance. And if if you wanted to do like a, a, like a black comedy version of The Shining, he would be perfect. But but there's so many other things he could that he could do. Uh, I mean, maybe it's not too late. He could be in uh, Edgar Wright's The Running Man in a couple of years' time. I mean, I <laughs> certainly would pay to see that. Yeah, I mean, this this also sort of touches on a thing I've um, mentioned about Cage before, um, and the, a good example being you know Jack Nicholson there because Cage is someone certainly at this point in twenty twenty one. When you think about Nicholas Cage, I guess to um, the uh, the norms out there who don't run a bloody podcast like insane people like me, um, when you think about Nicholas Cage, you, you probably think of um, the screaming, the shouting, the overtop cage performances, the classic YouTube video, Nicolas Cage losing his shit, um, mm-hmm. which will forever be one of my favorite videos on the internet. Um, so I think with Cage, it, you know, you kind of have to be careful in a way of what you cast him in these days because people know him for a certain thing and they expect a certain thing out of him. Mm. And you don't always see the character like you see Nicolas Cage. I mean, like in this film, you know, I think I, I, I obviously it doesn't really help sort of knowing what this was before going into it. Um, but I was expecting Nicolas Cage. I got Nicolas Cage. Yeah. Um, you know, the the no one's here to see Brent Ryan and understand his journey and his flashbacks about how he bought a car from his father and 
Um, and he likes to swear around his kids because he's a cool dad or something. I don't know. Um, but he's he, he he takes a certain type of film to um, uh, and I say this for lack of a better term. And again, with all due love and respect to the greatest actor of our generation, the Golden Hog himself, Nicolas Cage. Um, some films have to be written and acted and directed in a certain way to almost play him to his strengths or disguise it in a way. And I sort of look at stuff like, um, you know, Matchstick Men is one, an underrated Cage film for me where I I didn't really see Cage. I saw the character. Uh, the best example, I think, of seeing a character and not Cage is adaptation. Mm-hmm. Um, when you see the Kaufman twins. Um, but, I'll, you know, we get more stuff in, in recent years where I think you, you come for Cage. Like Willy's Wonderland, obviously, uh, Mandy, we get a fair bit of it there. Um, and then... You know, we're going to get some whole level of cage in the unbearable weight of massive talent when hopefully that drops later this year. I don't, I mean, I would also say that I think he is capable of sort of not being Nicolas Cage, but it's as you say, the director still really needs to know how to harness that energy, but twist it slightly to get what they want. For example, um, with Leaving Las Vegas, which is arguably his best performance in any film, um, or um, I, I would also I would say, obviously, despite the fact that he does go around with a huge custom-made axe, Mandy is also qu- quite a different film for him, just because he it's sort of it's a lot more that he's he's not just crazy he's sort of he he has and 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 um and um wild at heart as well he's still certainly a quirky character but he's also still sort of he's toned down a bit. it's still very much a nick cage role but it proves in my opinion anyway that he has more range than i think some people give him credit for and in willie's wonderland as well he doesn't say anything at all and yet he's still such a compelling screen presence yeah, it, this is what I mean. Like I said, when, it, when it's hard to pin him down, I think ultimately, as I don't know if he will admit it in such terms, um, but he enjoys an absurdist performance, a surreal performance. He's not particularly interested in realism. He, you know, mm. he's quite a German expressionism and uh, nouveau shamanic as he utilized on Ghost Rider. But obviously, you know, with films like leaving las vegas uh an adaptation um and joe as well another one which i think is one of the most underrated cage performances of all time Mm. um he can do real he can do natural he can do grounded and human um it's kind of one of those things it's if and as and when the role suits that for him um because i think eight times out of ten eight point five times out of ten he will probably look towards a role where he can sort of do the things that he's interested in, and that's yeah. being the cage um, that we that we know and love. Um, which you know, obviously, we get in sort of heaps and and, and spades here. Um, and so, so I wanted to sort of talk about the um, the ending. Actually, before the ending, I think it's important to um, talk about another character in the film who I I think does you know. 
a serviceable job, if for nothing else than getting the shit beaten out, out of them all film. Uh, and that's Damon in a yeah, Robert Cunningham, <laughs> who he arguably has the worst time in this film. Mm. Um, Damon now sort of the, uh, the boyfriend character of Carly, the eldest daughter of the Ryans. Uh, Ryan, sort of your um, Carly, she's like rebellious, sort of teenage angst, you know, moving away from the mother. You know, we're not bonding, we're not best friends anymore. A strained relationship, um, a relationship that dad doesn't quite approve of. So, his character, um, Damon, is what should I say, clues up on what's going on. Uh, sort of the first half, like the main characters in the film. Um, but what was your sort of thoughts on um, on, on a poor old Damon in this film as well? Yeah, with Damon, it's he. It's such a he is. He's got a really deep and serious background that just doesn't belong in a film like this. It, it does feel like there's the other film that Damon should be in, where he's obviously yeah. he's trying to do that test, and it sounds like he's intelligent and. He wants to sort of go somewhere with his life. Um, it, sort of, there's the implication that his, you know, his parents, his parents, have been divorced. His dad's an alcoholic, and yeah, he just gets the ever-loving stuffing just knocked out of him. For, and yeah, he survives everything. <laughs> I mean, one of my favorite moments though is just when Nick Cage was almost going back to Mortal Kombat. He seems to sort of be. Storing up the power in his fist when he gives him that massive slap to the back of the head um, <laughs> that renders him unconscious in most of the film. Yeah, that is a weird shot, isn't it? Mm. That's, I didn't think about it at the time, but I've just flashed back to it and like, there's like a quick separate shot of him like leaning back and like look. I think he looks at the fist like mm. he, like it's a proper fatality, like he cocks it and everything. <laughs> And just hits poor Damon on the back of the head. He hits his head against the floor. He's knocked out. Mm. Um, Falls down the stairs and just just everything. Yeah, I mean, obviously he gets... um, I think it's a poignant point that you touched on there. Like, his background story... That's a different film. Mm. Um, There's a, a lot alluded to that's just dropped throughout the rest of the film. Obviously, he's doing the tests... It's implied that he's smart, um, and it looks like he finishes first um, mm-hmm. from the test, and then he walks through what I can only describe as the wall of Karen. Um, <laughs> <laughs> all these parents just waiting outside the test centre. Uh, no one bats an eyelid about it. Um, he visits his dad, who, you know, we see the, the cans and the bottles on the floor. So obviously he's an alcoholic, and he's like, oh, dad, not this again. Um, and then his dad attacks him with a broken bottle before his dad just basically swanton bombs through a table, <laughs> impales the broken bottle through his neck. Um, and then he just kind of deals with it. He gets like, like the first one is the slashed arm. He gets hit around the back of the head by Cage, as we were saying. Um, he gets hit with the, the meat tenderizer hammer over a balcony, um, mm-hmm. onto a chair to the floor. He gets a coat hanger wire through the cheek. Um, oh, yes, yeah. He has a terrible time, and he just survives everything. It's like when he got knocked off the balcony. I was kind of like, "Well, well that's you know, that's dead. That's the protection out of the way. Um, maybe that's like a horror trope, like the the, the boyfriend of the, I guess, the sort of final girl thing." Mm. Um, but no, he, he he comes back to um, hit Kendall around the head with a shovel at the end of of the film. 
So it's it's kind of like it's there's nothing like it's it's weird to describe. There's nothing wrong with his character, but like you said, there's just some pieces there that don't need to be in the film that don't gel mm. it's kind of like his character was for the purpose of like this is the person who explains to the main character what's happening this is the person through which we can channel the horror and the gore of the film this is the person who will act as the punching bag um he's the exposition punching bag basically which is which is a shame um because robert cunningham i think does a perfectly serviceable mm. job in the role but um just gets an absolute kick in for his tr- for his troubles. I mean, I think um, I would much rather have there be more a focus on him than the son because I have to confess, I I sided with the parents on that one. The son is decidedly <laughs> very irritating. <laughs> I guess there's that bit where he nearly gets hit by the car, where you're probably thinking like, oh, "Fucker!" Yes, so close, <laughs> so close. Um, but he does have that one. Just his reaction. And Cage's reaction just after like you touch it again, and I will fucking kill you. And like they're smiling, and then they stop. So it's, it's oh, it's wonderful. No one else <laughs> could get away with doing that. I think <laughs> there's there's that bit at the start where you know he's he's yeah, tickling uh, mm. Josh when you get, I guess, like the hints of the rage um, where he says to um, Sun Yi, who I think is like the third help in the house, yeah. she's like. I can't remember what she says. I think she says something about like this food ready or something. Yeah. And and then he just was like, fuck you. <laughs> um, and then his son like throws like a ball at the back of his head or something. Yeah. And he turns around and stares at him for like five seconds, like 10. It's not a guarantee for you. Um, and I, I think there was, there was stuff like that before we got the full blown range where I was like, where Cage sort of shown his sort of his comedy chops as well. And mm. I, I think, I think comedy as well is, is something that Cage doesn't get a lot of credit for um, mm. because he's he's done a few comedy films. He's not really known for comedy, but it's something he can do and it's something he can do well. He's got like great physicality. Um, and again, touching back on actually, you know, as we brought up a few times in the episode, um, Willy's Wonderland, where that is purely all physical. That's like, mm. other than a grunt here and there, it's 99% physicality. Um and he can he can do comedy very well, and I think it's again something he doesn't get a lot of credit for, and um, I guess it's helped by the absurdity of the situations in both Mum and Dad and Willy's Wonderland. Yeah. But um, it's it, it's really good, and the cage lines are the ones that I laugh the most at. You know, to say it again, mouth to dildo, what a line! Um, in what other film are you gonna are you gonna get that line? Um, where I think he's saying about how I think the internet keeps changing and he can't keep up with it. Uh, um, and I just like how he added high Brent in there. Like the, like porn is stopping to say like, Oh, hi, this is what we're doing. By the way, anal beads. Um, just, just sort of really, really wonderful stuff. I think another thing that links, um, Woody's Wonderland and mum and dad as well is that there's two absurdist uses of, um, sort of nursery rhyme type songs. Um, and, um, there's something weirdly zen I find now about watching Nick Cage do DIY because we have him building yeah. the uh, billiard table in the basement and also just the general cleanliness of um, the Willy's Wonderland restaurant and a good chunk of the films dedicate these long 
um sort of montages of him building and fixing things and i don't know it's, it's just it's strangely relaxing to watch he's just a general handyman there's a weird asmr quality to him um, exactly to, to some oh, stuff Nicky, like... he couldn't do asmr like he could when he's talking quite softly but then you'd be drifting off and then he just randomly screams something for no reason yeah, I mean, he's he's building the pool table and he's having a little dance. I was, I was thinking of like obviously the the pinball um, mm-hmm. scene in Winnie's Wonderland. He's dancing to that punk song, um, which I shazammed was Weegan Youth, the song any town. In case you're interested, listeners, um, which I I also imagine might have been one that he's added himself because I think he is a bit of a like a punk rocker at heart. Um, if from reading his karaoke choices or anything to go by, I know he's quite fond of a. Uh, uh, sex Pistols and Rage Against the Machine at the karaoke, um, which I would... I've said it before and I'll say it again. I would pay to see Nicholas Cage at karaoke. Oh, yes. What, what a wonderful thing. Um, but, um, again, I, as I mentioned earlier, sort of looking at the ending as well, I think something that um, sort of picked the film a bit, uh, up a bit for me, again, towards the end, because I think by the last 10 minutes, I think... And I guess for like a better term, the the joke of the film was wearing a little bit thin for mm-hmm. me towards the end. But when you get sort of the reminder that uh, uh, Brent's parents are turning up and it affects older generations yeah. as well. And then it, it's like fucking catch the pigeon all around the house. Like the grandparents are chasing Cage. Cage is chasing the kids. Everyone's chasing everyone around. Cage the, is barking. Um, yes, Cage... <laughs> That's so weird. I made a note. I was like, "Yeah, it makes it makes sense." But there was a, a, like a lot of things in that ten minutes that I kind of like blink and you'll miss it because so much is so much is frenetically happening, mm. which I thought it was really good. And I I added to like I'd forgotten they'd mentioned like the grandparents at the start, and then Brent and Kendall just stop and like, wait, was that today? Um, and it's I think it's a nice enough. Not a massive twist, but like a little bit extra, like a little side dish as well that sort of pulled me back in mm-hmm. to the film. Uh, what was your sort of thoughts on the, um, <laughs> the the family tree trying to take each other down? Well, one thing I was also going to add as well in terms of twists, I did like that for a while it did seem as though... Um, uh, some Blair's character that she was going to sort of buck the trend and that she was actually going to be trying to protect them and maybe Nick Cage was the one who was going to be trying to attack them also I really enjoyed that and as well I just um, I think what was cl- in a way clever about it is I'm sure most of the audience will have I apart from probably your most diehard last Henriksen fan had probably completely forgotten that they were supposed to be coming around and that it was mentioned that he was in it. And it, the way that it just doesn't waste any time and it just kicks off straight away into, well, yeah, it affects everyone, all parents and uh, younger ones. It was just gleefully demented and just such a good laugh to watch. <laughs> yeah, like... um like you said, I I forgot it was so it was just a nice little bit extra at the end, and I think that's the best way to to, to describe it's demented. Like it's just a demented absurdity, uh, and knowingly and as you said, gleefully so. Just uh, just throughout the film, um, I, I mean, sort of Lance Henriksen at the end as well. Obviously, uh, 
a bit of a cult horror icon in many mm. respects has been through I'm just quickly scrolling through his um Wikipedia page now and that's like a long list of credits like there, there's a podcast on Henriksen right there um yes. <laughs> with plenty more plenty more work to come um but when they're they're, they're chasing each other you know Cage opens the door, immediately gets pepper sprayed by his mother in the face. Um, he's, he's just getting like that little knife, just stabbing him a little bit. And he's like, you fucking killed me. You fucking killed me. Um, and then you've got uh, Kendall. She's tussling with the mother. Um, she's like, Kendall's not even a real name. <laughs> <laughs> Which it's so weird. It seems like, you know, that's the kind of thing that a disapproving in-law might say, yeah. I guess. Um, and they're to like, like he was always too good for you. And then they're tussling and pepper spraying each other. And um, Cage is t- chasing Josh into the um, into the garage. Uh, Henriksen is chasing Cage into the garage. They're all climbing through the car. Um, and then he gets that. You know, he's getting stabbed in the leg. And he's like, "Get your claws off me, you goddamn filthy dinosaur!" He's like, "Dinosaur, am I?" Which made me think, you know, I couldn't help but think of like, you know, Planet of the Apes gets your paws off me, mm, you damn dirty ape. Of course. Um, so I think, you know, they probably wanted to use that line, but probably couldn't. Um, I think as well at that point, it really made me, because I found it very evocative of in Resident Evil 7, the video game, when there's a sort of a boss fight in a car garage. And it made me think that Nicolas Cage would be perfect um, for the character of Jack Baker. In, they wouldn't have to do very much with him physically, I don't think. And it would it would be... I, I'm not the biggest proponent of, um, fil- of games being turned into films, but if they ever did, he is the only person who could do that role any justice. Oh, to be fair, now you've mentioned it, that is a pretty solid casting, I think. <laughs> um, although... Unfortunately, the way the way my stupid brain works is, you know, I'm seeing the character of um, uh, Jack from the Resident Evil Seven, and then I'm adding Nicholas Cage to that, and the image that I'm getting is the character Nick Cage played in the the film Army of One, um, which if you've if you've seen that his character Gary Faulkner, um, very very strange. So hopefully that he wouldn't be as weird as he is. Um, in in that film um but yeah but such like a wild ending where he manages he sort of like whips the car into his mother and kills her and then his dad goes through the window screen and his brain explodes <laughs> um and then he you know and that's all um sort of between and and after um and before the uh, the flashback scene of him um talking to Josh about how he totaled the car and there's that flashback you get of those teenagers that are sort of doing donuts in like an open space and there's a, a naked woman like straddling the guy driving and like her breasts are out and then you basically find out that's Brent. He's like, oh yeah, I used to be like a wild child myself and I was kind of like, okay, so there's some context for that, why that scene was there, because you get it in the opening credits as well, that very weird 70s mm. opening credits kind of thing. Um, but at the same time, I was kind of like, well, they explained it, 
but it's added nothing. I'd rather it just wasn't there because it yeah. just didn't add anything. I will give them uh, full props to getting a younger actor who made a very convincing young Nick Cage. I would say. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, if you if you can get the <laughs> if you can get the work in the Cage Brooklyn <laughs> gig, um, then absolutely. Why not? It did make um, me hunger a little bit though for um, Drive Angry. Yeah. Which is just, it's up there in terms of my favorite Cage films. Yeah. Um, actually, that being said, uh, Drive Angry, another one for me, which I think is, um, which I've said before, you know, not as angry as the film title may lead you to believe. Um, but I, but I think it's, um, a solid Cage performance that I was Definitely. pleasantly surprised at. I, I sort of put it in, um, I guess a to be constructed list of, um surprising cage films in as much as the film i got by the end wasn't the one i was expecting mm. going in oh, and i enjoyed it and i think that's definitely up there in terms of films i wasn't expecting to be quite that fun um but in terms of mom and dad obviously that leads towards the end when um they're they're both sort of um uh, knocked out by the end cage, knocks himself out in the car crash. Uh, as we said, Damon uh, knocks out Kendall with a shovel, and then they wake up restrained in the, like the destroyed basement, which we should add has been um, they got um, <laughs> congrats, they got played. So they filled it up with gas. Um, Carly orchestrated a um, some matches, I think, on the door, so it exploded on them when they opened it. They hid in the vents. Um. But then they're woke up and they're restrained in the basement and then the kids and Damon are watching them. And then you, I think this is what we touched on a bit, like a strange ending. Um, mm. They're watching them and then you don't know how much time has passed. You don't know if this hysteria is passed or if it's it still apparently appears to be there. But they're sort of tied together and they're like, you know, we, you need to understand we love you more than anything, but sometimes we just want to, as cages, and then the film abruptly ends. So, I mean, I don't know if that was supposed to be a nod to parents, uh, again, not being one myself, if it's like, you know, this is, is this a thing that all parents say? Sometimes we love you, we just want to kill you. Um, have all of our parents been dealing with, like, a restrained hysteria this whole time? Is this a thing that just happens when you're a parent? Um, I don't know, like, what were your thoughts on the um, on this ending? I remember seeing it in the cinema, there was a genuine sort of feeling of deflatement i mean i think n none of us were sort of thinking oh this is the best film ever or the best nick cage film ever but mm -hmm. it was a real sort of ah uh, it was just a bit odd i found i mean it's not up there with the worst endings to any film um but it certainly won but then I, when i was making notes for it i also said but also how could you end it with the kids killing the parents in the end or the other way around um <laughs> that would i don't know would that have been too dark or would it have been too hollywood and cheesy if like they, actually they were all okay in the end i i don't know i i will it's one of those cases where someone might say well i really didn't think that was any good and someone can say well what would you have done and i fully put my hands up and say i don't know how i would have ended it yeah great point um I think, like I said there, I think that this, just the very nature of this film and what it is, it would have been a difficult film to end in a resolute way that would have 
satisfied everyone. Mm. Um, you can't exactly go back to normality and then the parents wink at the camera and be like, so that happened. Um, and then just go out and get ice cream or just everyone dying. So I, I, th- I suppose in a way, and I don't want to make it sound like it was a cop-out ending, not at all, but I think it was one of the, the safest ways to end it. Yes. Um, yeah. And it, I guess it leaves threads for a sequel. Not that I think there needs to be one. I think, you know, you could do different stories that happen or if you want to explain the static, if you feel it needs it needs explaining. Um, but I think it ended. And like you said, I think it, it was a bit like, oh, like it's yeah. a bit it's a bit deflating. Um, but again, how else were you supposed to end this one, really? I was going to say, um, to, to go back to that point about sort of telling different stories, I think I didn't really realise it until watching it again that I think ultimately that's the film's biggest sort of Achilles heel in that I think it would have worked better with a wider perspective. It's a bit like sort of why I feel like the Purge, first Purge film wasn't that good. I mean, it had a really solid idea. And then when they sort of started to expand it more to being, oh yeah, this is citywide or this is America. You know, and you saw lots more examples. I think that would have made a better film. I mean, mm-hmm. it might have meant less cage, but I think it would have, benefited more from having a lot more sort of silliness and different parents and probably other silly ways in which people could have been killed off. I would agree with that as well. I think um, we get uh, like morsels of the other parents. Mm. There's um, Carly's friend, I think it's Riley, who we just kind of see very quickly just gets um, strangled by her mother. We see like hints of other parents that are like bloodied and there's that um, kid, I think it was called Evan, who climbs over the school gate at the start and is just keyed to death. Yeah. Um, although that that scene actually, um, when the uh, when the Karens break in and then everyone's overwhelmed, when he gets um, the parents like storming the school and running over like their uh, like the football field, and you get that really weird like bossing over like Wii music that's playing as the, <laughs> as the parents are storming the school, and I was like, you know, that was a choice. Um, but then there's parents tackling children. The only one I wasn't sure of was there was one of the police officers or security guards who was, um, you know, uh, knelt over one of the mothers and just like punching fuck out mm. of her and basically beats her to death. Um, and it's kind of like, well, that doesn't make sense in the context of the film unless somehow he's gone back in time and he's that person's specifically that <laughs> yeah. person's mother. Um, or law enforcement is affected in a completely different way that we're, we're just not made aware of. You know, not that this is the film I should really be spending time trying to nitpick stuff no. about. <laughs> um, but, um, for, for me, um, like the only sort of genuinely sort of, and I would say it's a sort of scary moment, is despite the fact that they are watching live news on a portable DVD player, never mind that. Um, yeah, weird. <laughs> um it's when they're interviewing this guy and he's saying how you know what's going on is terrible but i can't pretend that i didn't want to do it i can't make these crocodile tears and make you not think of me as a monster i'm like wow that's terrifying and that felt the most sort of harrowingly real bit in the whole film but again that's also it's why i say that it doesn't quite know whether it wants to go all out with a comedy or actually go no this you know these are parents killing their children it's horrible 
Yeah, I think another great point. Um, I, I'd actually forgotten about that. It's it's only like like a 10, 15 second scene yeah. as well. Yeah, that, yeah. That, that that guy getting interviewed, and he's <laughs> he's just like you know I'm trying to cry for you because I'm a monster, but I, I can't do it. I think it's horrible, but I killed mine because it's necessary. And I was like, in that fifteen seconds, I was like, whoa, there's like a whole another layer that could have been explored there. Um, but I think, like we were saying, just sort of the. I guess the tonal confusion yeah. of the film, not really knowing quite what it wants to be. Um, I think to its credit, you know, it's it's played cage to its strengths. It's yeah. tried to maintain um, a balance, doesn't really achieve it, but it's it's tried to present itself as, as one thing. Um, but I think at 90 minutes, the film does... For the most part, fly by. Um, yeah. there are, you know, some issues here and there, but I think it's the right length. Um, so, in terms of that, you know, can't be too too mad at it. Um, but I suppose that sort of brings us really to sort of, um, I, I guess, a good point to sort of sort of wrapping up the episode as well. So, I suppose um, in the final thoughts, sense, you know, Ollie, what would be your sort of final thoughts on um, Mom and Dad? I think. If you want a really good example of Cage Rage that is also sort of backed up with Stelma Blair being really good, and there are moments in it that are sort of quite effective. I, I would say it's one of those, you probably watch it with your friends, switch your brains off, and maybe a few beverages of some kind, and just enjoy it and try not to sort of overthink it. Will you... Will it sort of be remembered in the grand echelon of Cage films? No, but it's certainly one that's got, for me, some of his standout, hilarious, over-the-top brilliance to it. And so it shouldn't be ignored, but it's it's not a classic. Yeah, agreed. I think in terms of uh, your more recent Cage performances, this is one that you can argue is um, a return to form in yeah. some aspects for Cage. Uh, but most importantly, Josh should have died. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I think on that on, on that bombshell, uh, obviously, Ollie, thank you so much for joining me this thank week. It's you, been a lot of fun. Me. My absolute pleasure. Uh, for the listeners, uh, where can we find you on the various social medias? So um, as you very kindly mentioned at the beginning, I'm part of uh, a sitcom podcast, which is where we go through um, sitcoms episode by episode. Currently, we are trudging our way through Friends at the minute. Um, it also involves my partner, um, Emmy. Uh, both she and Eddie are both big fans of Friends. I can't stand it for the life of me. Um, that's sort of our dynamic and um, yeah we are on Facebook just search for Sitcand we're on Twitter at Sitcand and we have a Teespring store we're on all social medias you'll find us somewhere and yeah I mean it's um, it it goes all over the place as a podcast you know frequently as you say we won't just be talking about friends we'll be talking about all sorts of random nonsense. A lot of wrestling references as well tend to creep in there because that's how we're all friends. Um, <laughs> Love that. Uh, but yeah, it's um, a good, crazy, wacky time. And if anyone fancy listening to us, then we'd love to have you. Wonderful. And links will be 
in the description below. I think I might be with you on that. It's like, I don't hate friends, but for me, and hot take here, like the Beatles, I fucking get it, all right? I just get it. Move on. Move on! Um, but <laughs> with that said, this episode comes to an end. Uh, thank you for listening. If you have been, we will see you in the next one, which, as I touched upon earlier, will be Mandy. We'll be covering Mandy next week. Uh, but until then, keep on, keep on caging. It's all you have to do. Take care and goodbye.